Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Wrong one. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Robin Ince. Hello. Hello. Hello, Robin Ince. I found out how comedy works. I went and did a... um, Oh, great. It was so. This is going to save a lot of time. You can cancel the rest of the series. Yeah. It was. Um, <laughs> what's the term? I, I went down to University of Kent, and they were. It was a, a philosophy weekend where a bunch of philosophers got together to talk about comedy. Wow. And, okay. Uh, and then I was just doing some, you know. And so I went to all the lectures because I was fascinated. Fun, and it was that wonderful thing. Was it funny and thought provoking? Well, what was brilliant about it was someone would explain <laughs> through various diagrams and equations and, and philosophical ideas how comedy worked, <laughs> and then I'd put my hand right. up and say something specific about actual comedy, and they would go, oh, no, I don't, I don't know that." So it was that beautiful thing that it was exactly what I mean. It was, it was mm. an absolute delight. But it was all about this, you know, the old idea about the, you know, the, the physicist who, to, you know, let's imagine that the cow is spherical. You know, it starts off immediately by having something where you go, but actually, if you were on stage doing this, yeah. I don't know how that would work. And it was, what's it called? It's incongruity. What I've been doing oh, right. is is something incongruity. I can't remember what, it, what it, the actual term is. There's a two word term, which is what comedy is. <laughs> Yeah, but the good thing is, by not remembering the first part of the term, you still have to do this series now. Are we actually being a bit disingenuous at the front of this podcast by saying, well, you know, we might find out a bit about how comedy works? I suppose we do, but no one's actually going to explain to you how comedy works, are they? That's not how... 
comedy works. No. <laughs> I, think, I think maybe, maybe you're going to find out how this bit of comedy works, maybe. Because the whole point is that the other thing we found out is that the rules keep changing every week. There are things that work brilliantly for a romantic comedy that don't work for a sketch yeah, show true. with stupid juxtapositions in. There turns out to be... Uh, it shouldn't be the comedy department. It should be the comedy departments. And it, it well, that's, I think George Carlin is a good example of that, where George Carlin, you know, one of uh, America's most kind of successful and revered comedians, and... Every time that he did an HBO special, he toured for two years, going from town to town, trying out every bit until he got it right. Now, if, the, if there was a point where you went, I've learned now, <laughs> by the time you were 70 and still doing stand-up, you go, oh, it's typed out, I just need to remember it now. No, yeah. you still have to go from club to club to yeah. club. Yeah. To, to, and, and still, you can be shocked when you go on stage and go, but that's the funniest idea I had, and that went to nothing. Yeah. And that, which was a throwaway remark, I mean, barely a sentence, is... The bit which, for some reason, did you learn? I mean, did you actually that genuine question from that that University of Kent? Did you learn anything about comedy? You, you're, I'm, I'm allowing you to learn something about. I've philosophy. remembered oh, what? what it's normative incongruity. Cancel the series. <sighs> Sorry. Let's just put the theme tune in here. Thanks very much for enjoying uh, the 62 episodes well, that's so far. How comedy works. Normative incongruity. That's what. That's what a joke is. That's what comedy is. Well, Sorry, so in other words, surprise. set up, um, uh, confirm, confound. Rule yeah. of three. Yeah, so it's... The rule of three. The, no, normal exi- <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. Say what's happening, confirm it's what's happening, and then surprise. So this is much like the 17th episode of The Prisoner. It turns out rule of three was the clue all along. And A friend was- of ours, um, uh, Ian Dunt, the mighty political um, editor, did say to me, he's a fan of this podcast, and he did say a lovely thing, which actually I think is relevant. He said, uh, what I like about your podcast is that it's like having a chemist explain to you why you like yoghurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it shouldn't spoil yoghurt. I was thinking about this recently, because the, the, the famous thing that Barry Cryer always quotes is, you mustn't dissect comedy because mm. it's, it's like dissecting a frog. You don't really learn very much, and the frog dies. And I, I've always said, that's, that's a good thing for Barry to say, and then thought, hang on. But we learn about anatomy from it. And we, if you didn't dissect any frogs, science would be a mess. Yeah. You do need to do it. And also, I think as well, Barry's very much a gag man. Mm. And I think you can kill a gag. But as far as something like, say, uh, production decisions or structure or script or character, I think you can cut them up as much as you like. And weirdly, I think people who are really brilliant at that tend to have slightly different careers or slightly different roles in writing rooms. If you're a gag man, it's pointless cutting things up. I think it well, tells you who Barry is, really. It's interesting to what those things which do continue to thrive, even with understanding. Because, I mean, as you know, you, the, the, one, one of the disadvantages of loving comedy and then going into it is you, <laughs> you will sometimes find it harder to laugh at certain things. If you've seen how you sausages are, are made, yeah, you don't want sausages. But there are, like, if I watch someone like John Hegley, that never dies. The joy of what, because John, yeah. there is something so, you know, the, the, the innate silliness. I, I watched again him dancing with string. And you know, I, I don't know if you remember that. He, he has a beautiful string dance um, and he's holding out things you can do with string, pretend they are an aeroplane. This spits the propeller, the rest of it. So, you know, all of that stuff. And it's just him dancing around and being ridiculous. Or Stuart Lee in his, his most recent show, his 10 minutes of what it would really be like if Ricky Gervais was saying the unsayable, <laughs> which is just him going... <laughs> 10 minutes of that, and it's just utterly stupid. 
And <laughs> and I would happily watch that again. There are certain things which repetition, you know, madness of, 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 of things. Jo, jo Neary's, and we mentioned her before, yeah. before we start recording. Joanna Neary, her embarrassed sex toy talk has never <laughs> become... One of the things that I love about it is also, unlike a lot of comics, once she gets it right, rather than go, I'll do it like that tomorrow, she'll go, I'll do it a different way tomorrow, find yeah. out if that works. And wow. watching her trying to explain how... What you can do with love exit is, and it's just <laughs> delightful, and it's so brilliantly done that when she was once doing a show, when I was doing one of my shows, mixing science and comedy and stuff, Jim Al, when she went, my voice is very dry, I can't. <coughs> Anyway, the, uh, Jim Al clearly was so worried that he started to walk on with a glass of water for her. Wow. And I had to go, Jim, Jim, she's not really embarrassed about it. And that's the beautiful thing about when, when physics meets yeah. a comedy routine about embarrassed sex toy talk, <laughs> it worries that it can only be real. Yeah. And, and it was a beautiful moment. And, and, and also that's not – Jim was embarrassed. Also. I said there is no embarrassment in showing that you care yeah, and yeah. you were genuinely worried. She does it so brilliantly. So that, that's, that's like a round of applause. Yeah. That's like saying that yeah. was so good. I thought it was real. That's great. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, what you're talking about there is is there's there's realism in there, which will uh, authenticity, emotion, which doesn't uh, analysis won't ruin, uh, and also the, the, with Stu and with John Hegley and with when people say I love Vic and Bob or Harry Hill, mm. the silliness. There's play, and yeah. I think you can. You can analyse and have theories of play, but play is always fun. Yeah. The childish bit of comedy, even if you've analysed everything else, the moment you sort of cut loose and say, I want to see something as analytical, say the thick of it, which has been made by absolute comedy scientists, still some of it is the energy and play in Peter Capaldi's voice. Yeah. You go, that bit doesn't succumb to analysis, but you have to build the scaffolding on which that... You can analyse how to put scaffolding up. That's kind of helpful because then people don't die. But once once you put someone on top of the scaffolding doing a, uh, juggling eels, that may not succumb to analysis. But you, you're then ignoring the fact that some very very skilled people put them up there. Well, we've you know worked together on shows where I think you've, we've had that horrible thing where you've sat down and you've written jokes, and some of the jokes are what you call the the you know the first jokes of the day. Yeah. where you almost write them to be so embarrassed by them that you must write something better. <laughs> mm. You have to put that terrible joke down. Set a low bar. Because otherwise you go, oh, my God, imagine if that's what we give in. Yeah. <laughs> but then very often when you do give them in, you go, they felt the best joke. But sometimes amongst producers, yeah. I think, this is not all producer, anything like, no. but there are some which, unless it follows the mathematical rule. Yeah. Oh, yes, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he got off the bus. That's very good. That's very good. And then you go, but that's not the good joke. That's the bad joke. That's the joke which is merely copying out the rules and mm, putting yeah. it in. So I, I remember having a, writing a sketch once and someone went, well, this doesn't work because you see both the characters in it are funny. Yeah. And you go, but, well, how? Sorry. So, yeah, no, no, that doesn't work. You need to, you have to have one straight character. That's why Vic and Bob never succeeded. Yeah, Vic and Bob, it? Laurel yeah. and Hardy, yeah. Yeah. all of those things, you yeah. know. Yeah. Did I, have either of you read I, Marty, Marty Feldman's autobiography? It's, it's such a love. Well, I, I was pleased that, because for those of you who don't know, uh, you're listening, that basically what happened was uh, Marty Feldman's wife, who only died a few years ago. Um, She's Loretta, she, isn't she? Loretta, that's right. Who, she, who's she, name-checked in Life of Brian. Very <laughs> beautiful in terms of the uh, the book has a lot about their love for each other. Mm. Apparently when, when Graham Chapman was, because Graham Chapman was trying to keep him alive when he had his uh, heart attack and... Uh, as he was dying, he said to Graham Chapman uh, to tell Loretta, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad I didn't have to put my thing in anyone else. Which I think <laughs> is such a... Because he loved us so much. And I thought... what And, and there's, there's some lovely stories about just, again, comic timing. Like when, when he one day walked in and Loretta was in tears and uh, he... Um, 
just just walked into the kitchen, just held her, didn't say anything, just held her while she was crying. And then eventually she said, I think it was uh, my, my brother's died. And he just looked at her and said, so I presume this is a bad time to tell you that I'm leaving you. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, that's, but, but what I love about that book, it, it's such a... <laughs> But it was a delight that that when because uh, yes, yeah, yeah, oh, sorry, I was telling you, yeah. That basically, what happened was she when when she died about thirty years after after Marty Feldman died, she'd never been back up into the loft, which is where all his writing was. She could right. look at pictures wow. Uh, wow. that uh, of, of him, but the writing was too close. The writing was something, and she said to this friend of hers who eventually she said, you know, when I've died, go up to the loft, and, and he's just rummaging through all these different sketches, and suddenly goes, oh, and he wrote an autobiography. So it was like oh. just in the loft for 30 years, his autobiography. And it's got, again, that bit about what I think really comes across. And what was delightful when, when Tim Taylor came in first to, to do this, this thing and, and Tim was with his wife as well. And I said, oh, Tim, have you read I, Martin? And they never knew about it. I mean, wow. in fact, most people at the Slapstick Festival where I was hadn't heard of the autobiography. And the reason I brought it up is I want everyone to read it because it's a really magnificent book. About, mm. And the thing that delighted me was their first reaction was, oh, Marty was such a lovely man. And you know when you're always worried, oh, did he go to Hollywood and did he become this? Yeah. No, he was a really lovely man. And then the way that he writes about just comedy has all the way through it love. Yeah. Mm. And I think that is, you know, the people that we've talked about so far are all people where you go, they loved. I mean, I, I sometimes feel that like when I'm touring and doing a show and I'm always get very excited when I'm on stage and very big and there's lots of different ideas run, running around in my head. And I do sometimes look at the audience and go, there's something wrong with what's happening because you probably know that the rules of comedy are, before I go on, I go, oh, bloody hell, those old stiffs out there again. I know not enough people have turned up. Oh, here we go then. <laughs> Hi, everyone. And I, I said, the trouble is, I think it's the other way around. I have a really lovely time performing to you and I think you might be the ones going, oh, God, when's this going to end? You know, it's, it's that reverse <laughs> yeah. thing. <laughs> of I enjoy doing it so much and I think BBC I, I don't think a sad audience biopic yeah I, I, <laughs> I, I think I'm not meant to enjoy it this much right when I'm actually on I mean I'm always worried as well in, in, in my head I'm always going oh my god I hope they're having a nice time because I'm having a brilliant time but yeah. they can't be having as good a time and I think you know that, that bit of all the people that I like are not the ones who you know slap on the fake Green or whatever. That's that's the magic element. The magic element that, that you don't find when you dissect the frog or when you do the, the the juxtaposition analysis or the algorithms is that very often the thing you're watching that is magically setting this thing on fire is love, and that's a fascinating thing because what you've chosen to bring in today. I've looked at my notes and I've capitalised in it the word love, and I think it's a thing that's about love. It's almost I'm excited about this. I think it defies analysis because it is. The magic ingredient in this is just someone's love for a thing. Uh, and you've got to tell people what you brought in because it was the most unexpected, certainly from you, <laughs> thing. I went, I got a list of things from you and I went, oh, I sort of expected that, expected that. I didn't expect this to be something you love this much. Please tell everyone. Oh, I love it. It's, it's, it's Hairspray, the, the, uh, the original version, 1988, uh, the John Waters uh, directed version. I 
I mean, my love of John Waters, what is a delight about doing this, of course, I went back to my bookshelf and I got all my John Waters books out. And, ah. and, that, and, and I have in my bag at the moment, I have, this is what, when you return, one of the hardest things, I think, is to truly reignite the love that you had for something when you were when you were young. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that's why I think, you know, you know, why Star Wars fans all seem to hate Star Wars. Yeah. You know, and, and, and <laughs> they, you know, they're not seven. Do, do you like, and, yeah, and that's the problem is I think they keep going back. They're 50 years old or, you know, my age, 51, whatever. And they want to have the same reaction when they were eight. Well, a friend and, of mine who's mm. a Doctor Who fan I can't coined a brilliant phrase, and he said Doctor Who fans live in a constant state of anticipation. It's one of my favourite words. And t- t- Toby Haydock <laughs> told me that one as well when I went to the Doctor Who convention. That he was, yeah, anticipate. I want it to be great. And I know it's not going to be. <laughs> My two favourites, Anticipointment, which I love. Oh, I hope they've got something wrong about the Cybermen. Oh, they haven't, they haven't, oh, this is rubbish. Nim, 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 nim. The other one is, our, our current political state was described recently uh, by Fintan O'Toole as sadopopulism, which is another word which I just think is fantastic. Portmanteau words are fantastic. Um, but, oh. yeah, John Waters was, I mean, my, my love of him goes back from when I was 10 years old. When I think I was nine or 10, and I was round at uh, one of my sister's friend's houses and it was like that kind of, oh, you can go up. So, you know, she, she had a, a brother who was older than me and he'd really been into films. He gave me a stack of NFT programs. In, in, in the 70s and 80s, there was a little kind of pocket magazine that came out with all of the things that were going to be shown at the National Film Theatre. And one of the pictures was... Divine, the publicity photo for Pink Flamingos, which is remarkable. I mean, Divine <laughs> looked so incredible. The shaved head and then at the back, the hair that's boofing out, the remarkable eyebrows drawn on. This, it, it, it's basically it's the dress that um, she has at the end for when they're, Mr. Divine, what are your beliefs? Kill everyone now. You know, it's <laughs> legalised mass murder, all of that stuff. And I, from that point onwards, I was like, what is this thing? What yeah. is this secret thing? And then uh, when I was probably about 14, 15, I got Danny Peary's cult movies book, you know, reading about Harold and Maud, and pro- I think probably Reefer Madness was in that one as well. And, um, and I would read about Pink Flamingos over and over again. You'd not seen any of these things. They were just they descriptions. Were, they were all images. Bulletins from the distant shore. Yeah. And you, you just, like in that same way that for my generation or our generation, like the first time that you went round someone again who had an older brother or sister's house and you saw they had Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas on the shelf. Yeah. And you saw the <laughs> Ralph Steadman cartoon and you didn't know what was in it. Yeah. But you wanted to. Um, and so John Waters, now I think before I saw Hairspray, I did see, I went to the Scala, which was this wonderful mix of a flea pit cinema showing incredible triple bills of, of, of strange movies. And they had a triple bill of Pink Flamingos, uh, Female Trouble and Desperate Living. And I remember sitting and watching Pink Flamingos and first of all being confused because I'd never seen a film that cheap on the big screen. So I couldn't, I couldn't believe, as I, I think I was 17, I might have been 18, I, could, I presumed that at some point it would become a film and it couldn't remain like that. And I just was like, I don't know what my reaction was because it was so much confusion and excitement because I'd waited so long and I wasn't disappointed, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, Edie Massey, who I always remember John Peel playing Edie Massey's, I think it was Big Girls Don't Cry was her single. Uh, and there we go. I don't know why they don't have a John Waters uh, a season on Channel 4. Rather a pity there. Edie Massey, Big Girls Don't Cry. And, uh, <laughs> and so all of this whole world, you know, Edie Massey, here's this big woman in a baby doll in a cot in a trailer going, Babs, Babs, the Eggman, the Eggman, when's the Eggman coming? Babs, Babs. Right, so all of this world to me was so bizarre. And then I started to read about Hairspray. 
And this was a mainstream movie. This was kind of like... It's a, PG. A, yeah. It, 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 it cost $2 million. I know. It was, I mean, what did he spend it on? It's where amazing. did that $2 million go? It's great, isn't it? Wigs. He, it, he, it, it must oh, have been well, the hair department. The hair is amazing and Piers Adora doesn't come cheap, you know. And That's true. Rico Kasek. You know, he said something amazing. He said, it did, <laughs> Walter's recalled about the budget. It allowed for cappuccino in the editing room. I didn't have to pick up the cast in the morning. And when it rained, they got ponchos. Yeah. <laughs> and that is what $2 million is to <laughs> Waters is the cast don't get wet. Well, when you think, yeah, because it had been about seven or eight years since he made Polyester, which of course is in Odorama. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen Polyester. Which <laughs> I haven't seen it. Polyester, has, so, no. it's, uh, so um, when you're watching the film, a number will flash up in the corner of the screen and you have a, uh, a scratch card and you scratch it. <laughs> and of course, it will be things like Mr. Divine will be given flowers by Tab Hunter. I mean, Tab Hunter, the great, fascinating wow. beefcake actor, and you start scratching it. So Divine is given some flowers and you start scratching, <laughs> but oh no, suddenly some dirty sneakers. Oh, Jesus Christ, right? I've still got a scratch card. Uh, unused. It was, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's ineffective now. It's my, my, my in, in a superposition of Odorama, um, Schrodinger's Odorama. And it was, um, and, and I think Jonathan Ross did a, a John Waters special. Yes. And it was just after Divine had died, of course, as well, but Glenn yeah. Milstead, I should say, yeah. really. And, and, um, and I was so excited. My, my friends Carolyn and Heather, uh, who were the, the kind of the, the older people who taught me, you know, when I was 18 years old, you know, when you get older friends. Yeah. And Carolyn and Heather were the ones from Australia and they, they would teach me about, you know, feminism and all these other things. And we went to the movies the whole time. It's all we did. And I remember the, I'd been to a bookshop in Kilburn to buy Crackpot, which was John Waters' collection of essays, which includes an interview with Piers Adora and a whole thing about the Buddy Dean show, which is what yeah. is based yeah. on. The dance yeah. contest that is the basis. Yeah, and that... Because and and the excitement of going into the West End and seeing Hairspray and coming out with a desperate desire to dance, which I can't do, yeah. as Carmen Silvera found out when I was in a musical written by Jimmy Perry, starring Sue Pollard and Ted Rogers, but that's a different story. <laughs> Just beautiful. It was first of all there, there is there's very little kind of uh, filth in it, but you know there's there's a zit bursting. Yeah. There's Debbie Harry as as the kind of nasty mother. There's with an uh, extraordinary fucking wig. I mean something that like, like a giant kind of like a question mark or a shrimp <laughs> or something hanging off her head. It's like a vase. It must have weighed a ton as well. We did um, we we did a work on um, uh, Yonderland a few years ago and went and did a set visit. And when those guys were wearing those big sort of I don't know kind of thirty forty centimeter high wigs, they can barely move. Yeah. They have to stand very very still because those things are really heavy. That stuff that. Debbie Harry's wearing must have really weighed on her. Well, there's a yeah, lot of, yeah. What's what's I suppose one of the things that's entertaining about watching these things is they are cartoons. They, these are drawings. They're like Mad Magazine. They're grotesque. Yeah. They're a bit Gary Larson-y or, or with the big beehives and things. But you've got real life people behaving like cartoons with the makeup and yeah. the size of cartoons. Someone was saying that you want you watch Divine moving around on those heels. They're apparently steel heels because to move Divine around on tiny spikes, they need to be extra strong. <laughs> and then you suddenly think, well, hang on, these people are. Larger than life with yeah. larger than life makeup, and they're moving quite elegantly round the frame. Oh, divine! It's an incredible moves achievement. Beautifully, mm. as, as as Edna Turnblad. I was I was watching again last night the scene where they go to the hefty hefty hideaway. Fatty, yeah. fatty, two by four. Can't get yourself through the dressing room door. Hi, I'm Mr. Pinky, and it's <laughs> just it's filled with delight. How about a fabulous frock just for me, Tracy? You'll have to work one extra day for free. 
It's a deal. Thank you, Mr. Pinky. <laughs> I'm going to make you a star. And and that's what it and, and yeah. Divine is and it is very sad that uh, you know that never saw that huge success. You know all of that. Nine success. days after the film dropped. Nine, nine days after it dropped. <laughs> yeah. Nine days after hey, the film's kids. released. Uh, nine days after the film's released, Divine is is dead. And yeah. this is the last thing. A beautiful double role. Which again, whenever you see an actor, you think of as being sort of one note, and you see them in a double role, you go, oh no, they're not. It's like Roger Moore in The Man Who Haunted Himself. You go, oh, the joke was that you did yeah, one yeah, thing, yeah. but actually I can tell these two apart. And when he's playing the head of the station, the racist head of the station, that's a completely different yeah, person yeah. Than, than Mrs. Turnblad. Absolutely not. Baltimore is not ready for integrated dancing. And your reaction to them is the polar opposite. Yeah. You love Tracy's mum and you don't like that guy immediately. Well, that's a good actor. She could be one of the June Taylor dancers. Hello? Well, yes. I am Tracy Turnblad's agent. Give me a pencil, quick, quick. The style of acting, especially in the early films, which is like, because, you know, John Waters basically made Andy Warhol films that weren't boring. Because <laughs> I think that, you know, the general Andy Warhol films are artefacts, but they're not something you want over. Whereas I can still sit and what because that that heightened acting, that underacting, you know, I'm coming, yeah. mama, I'm coming. It's it's near you know, some of it's nearly acting. Yeah. Some yeah. of it's way more than acting. And some of it is and they were all just and they were just characters. They they were people who all hung around together in the early sixties. And you know, they, they the these were the kind of outliers in, in, in Baltimore, the weirdos and the freaks and the beatniks. Yeah. And they just all came together and did these one and then hairsprays the Really the perfect conclusion. What do you want to hear, Amber? Shake a tail feather by the five dewtones. Here they are, the five dewtones. <laughs> when the film is about acceptance, and the film is about outliers and freaks coming together and weirdos and people who've been deliberately uh, pushed aside, like the black community and things. Basically, there's unfairness, and these people have, have got loads to offer. And like, or if you listed the things that are stopping these people being mainstream, they've all got something that you think would stop them, and they all get to be on TV, accepted, loved. There's no doubt that Tracy is supposed to be this big girl who'd never be the leader of the dance council. But she's immediately accepted and loved. Yeah, there's no battle. Movie. There's no battle. She, they see her dancing, and immediately she's doing the ladies' choice. And it and says yeah, this yeah. film says the moment that someone sees you, they will love you. They will t- will take you into their bosom. And it's all about communities pulling together and saying, "Why are you excluded? I want to make you included." So it's a film about love, and this is a film that says we reckon these lovable people, from Divine to Ricky Lake and everything, would be loved by kids by the yeah. mainstream. So I'm going to make a PG movie that hits all the beats of a 1950s dance-off movie without ever subverting any of them and says, but these people could make a delightful... They could make a film that I think is as artistically successful, if not more than Dirty Dancing, as a 1980s dance movie. Oh, I think it's it's aged tremendously well. It's really good. I remember a couple of weeks after that came out, I went to see the film Shag, which was meant to be kind of a similar thing with uh, Annabeth Gish and uh, I think Bridget Bridget Fonda. Fonda. But it didn't have that extra, you know, and that is, you know, if we are talking about the secret comedy, we've talked about it already. As you said, it is that thing which goes, this comes from a place which says, I have to make this. You know, when you read about, you know, John Waters, how did he get the film made? He went to New Line offices and he stood on the table and he did all the dance routines. (laughs) Yeah, this is how he did it. So he's shaking his tail feathers. 
Wow. All it's, that stuff, you know. It's got it's the just... same impulse. One of the things it always reminded me of, I lumped it in my head together with the B-52s. It's got a thing that says, we're not doing this because it's cheesy and cheap and funny. We're doing this because this is our favourite thing. This isn't, to me, this low art is high art. And it's got this wonderful thing that says, he's not chosen these quite forgettable dance routines because they're funny. They are funny. But he's done them because they're his favourite songs. Yeah. There's not a, what it doesn't have is a single cynical bone in it. Yeah. And I think people yeah, forget yeah, that with very com- true. comedy. Is supposed to be clever, so and clever gets mixed up with cynical. And actually, this is completely. It has honesty, integrity, love, passion. He's not doing these things because he's not read about this in an article. He went on those dance things. He was. He was. A yeah, he actually, of, actually appeared appeared on one of them. He did Buddy the twist Dean's on one thing, of them. Yeah, yeah Buddy did he? Thing. Yeah, this, yeah. Is he? this is from the heart. This is like wow. a David Sedaris thing about your youth. It's got memory in it. There's not a bit of it. That isn't honest, and that then puts it in the same uh, camp as things like Withnell. It's about something that really happened to this man. <laughs> now, when I say here that I want the big strong M, erase it and back to the mess. Get it? Walk on, you looking I have the same reaction as you, actually, which is that watching it, I just love watching people dance. Yeah. It, it makes me very happy to see a group of people <laughs> dancing. And these are particularly good, colourful dances, aren't they? They're really inventive and lovely. I was lucky enough to do a, a thing with uh, Eric Idle and, and Brian Cox. We did a kind of a, a weird thing for Christmas where it was it was on BBC and it was it was a, a musical. It was basically about Eric and Brian had been talking once, and it's, it's definitely also the relationship that I have with Brian, which is... He's trying to explain science, and I'm like Eddie Large, basically. Going, so let, let me explain that the the universe is. Oh, Brian, look over here! I've got a little joke here about Schrodinger's cat. Oh, shut up! Will you let me explain the science? So it was Eric basically had had said to to Brian, you know, you're trying to explain physics, and showbiz keeps getting in the way, and so the whole. It was Arlene Phillips, who is a quite remarkable choreographer. Mm. Uh, she had these dancers who were doing incredible dancers, dancing about different ideas in physics, yeah. right? So they are becoming subatomic particles, and they are. And every day when we were in the, um, you know, the, the rehearsal hall, I would just watch it and go, "How." Yeah. This is magic because I can't. I, there's no way. I'm far too self-aware to be able to dance because that's why I can't do sport or anything like you that. Lose yourself. I'm looking. Yeah, I don't get lost. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a perpetual I'm, kind of awareness. I'm the same. I absolutely cannot dance whatsoever. And people, uh, people never quite believe me on this when you know, they go, "No, come on, you're musical. You can dance." I go, "No, I can't. I can't. It's not the fucking same thing." In fact, my sister, who's a very accomplished dancer, once said to me, "Look, I'm going to teach you." a really simple couple of dance moves so you can at least jig about. And so she just started teaching me basically putting one foot in and then out and then another foot in and then out. (laughs) Um, And after about five minutes, she said, do you know what, you're right, you can't dance. Wow. And just gave up. You wonder if that ever happens on Strictly. Just so that there are people you don't hear about who've been put in a put in a shed somewhere. We don't hear about them. The celebrities who couldn't. Well, there was. Don't. What was the guy who used to present Top Gear? Oh, which Tiff was, Nadell, well, Quentin, Quentin Wilson. Wilson. Quentin Wilson. I think it was him. He literally had. He just moved his legs almost with them having the it's like, just what, like C-3PO dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you're watching this with? You're saying it's shamanic and it's transcendental. What's great about these dances as well is it's not like watching Fred and Ginger. Or even one of those great big dances from the end of something like Ferris Bueller where like a whole load of people from stage school come down and do the most astonishing, throwing themselves about kind of uh, West End dancing. These dancers are all dances that kids did. So yeah. They're quite simple. The instructions are on the record. The Madison is the, the, the big mm. signature dance. But anyway, it tells you what to do. Now, this guy 
but the joy of watching them all do it at once feels like You've seen this before. It's in OK Go videos. When you watch untutored dancers <laughs> suddenly br- cut a rug. It's in the uh, Jack Rabbit Slim scene in Pulp Fiction. They're not great dancers. They're dancing quite badly. And it's in the film you uh, always get quoted is uh, Band Apart yeah. with Anna Karina and that lovely new wave French cinema. When they do a dance in there, people aren't great dancers, but they're all in sync and they're all watching their feet and enjoying themselves. And there's something lovely in watching people who aren't brilliant dancers transcend their limitations and do it en masse. Okay, Batso, let's see what you're made of. It's really enormously moving because it's group endeavour. I mean, when you say Band Apart, there's, uh, I think it's pretty much in tribute in Hal Hartley's film, Simple Men. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that, where yeah. there's a dance routine which suddenly starts to Sonic Youth's Cool Thing. Wow. And it's beautiful. And I can't dance at all because Michael Legg and I in our Stupid Angry show, we were going to do that dance and I just can't, I, I always get the timing <laughs> wrong. But it's a beautiful, it, it's exactly like that dance band apart. I, I'm certain that's why Hal Hartley put it in. A dance breaks out and it's not tutoring, it's not drilled, you can see it. But in this film, there's a lot of stuff about movement and movement on camera and awareness that movement on camera isn't natural, it's theatrical. The lovely thing when Link, the, the Elvis kid, gets gets his knees broken and he's crawling like a guy in yeah, platoon yeah, towards yeah. the camera. <laughs> and it's really heightened, but weirdly represents being injured in a sort of like an icon for it. It's not yeah. real, but that heightened reality, which is in all the dancing in this, this is that's a heightened thing. You're watching people move in an unreal cartoonish way. And in terms of looking at this as a comedy, and it is on the front of the DVD, it says, A Comedy by John Waters. And the comedy in this comes from joy. There are some great lines in it, some outrageous characters and outrageous ideas, but a lot of the things you're laughing at... Penny Pingleton's mum. Penny Pingleton, you know you are punished. From now on, you're wearing a giant pea on your blouse every day to school so that the whole world knows that Penny Pingleton is permanently, positively punished. Who's a racist, you know, just that. <laughs> yeah. and, and underneath it all, as you said, it is that, that stuff that he's doing where, you know, at that point there was only once a month, you know, that was the only time you could have anyone Afro-American on the show and that was yeah. you know, called Negro Thursday and all that kind of stuff. There is a point to it as well. And it's not heavy-handed point it's very lightly thrown but also the ultimate idea of the preposterousness of that division what's the problem officer this is a white establishment oh come on listen we just came to dance that's not fair over your purse please that story break happens so effortlessly it could be done heavy-handedly i think a studio movie would have done it heavy-handedly and said it's all about racism and all about the early 60s we remember the late 60s and the the civil rights and things but the early 60s the divisions and things it happens within the story with the ease of one of those dances breaking out suddenly without noticing you notice that everyone's fallen in step for this story about racial segregation you kind of go where did it come from Yeah, yeah and for someone who is supposedly a crude trashy filmmaker that's really clever, isn't it? Well, he may have just accidentally hit on it, though. They fell into step, is what yeah. you said. Yeah, That's yeah. what happens there. Yeah. Basically, you choreograph the, the politics of the thing as well. And go, <laughs> no, 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 we're all going to do this together, you know. Can I please be excused to go to the library to study? Are you ready? Thank you.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I 
was I was astonished. I probably haven't seen this since I was about 18, 19. And I remembered it word for word because it's got a music and a rhythm to it. The music doesn't stop. So every, all the lines have got a rhythm. Everything Hair ratted up like a teenage Jezebel. <laughs> I've got ironing to do. Yeah. It's, I was Miss Soft Crab in 1945. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's got rhythms to it and you remember it. But what's uh, amazing, re-watching it, the politics, it falls into step with this sort of political message. And what's great about that is it then you then go, oh, actually, I've, I've been entertained by the camp of it and the fun of it. But if I'm going to watch this for an hour and a half, there better be some meat in it. And the meat isn't really plot-based. The plot isn't very complicated. <laughs> there are loads of antagonists and things, but no one really has a terrible, terrible time. But what starts happening is that there's immediately unfairness. Something needs to be fixed. And in that, it's got something in common with Roald Dahl. It feels like Matilda. It's written like a children's book where the baddies are being really unfair and you want the good kids to win out over the baddies. Because what the baddies are proposing, that the black kids and the white kids couldn't dance together and that a fat girl can't front this show, they're all so unfair that you go, oh, I want them to win. And then I started to notice, especially when Debbie Harry and I've forgotten the lady who plays uh, plays Amber's mum, who's racist and things, they spit and shout at the camera like the mums and dads in Willy Wonka. It feels yeah. like mm. the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka. God, I could have colours. talked about that as well, by the way. I watched that again with Joe Neary last week. What a great film but that's that got is. The, the Gene Wilder one. Yeah, yeah. But the cartooniness of it is film. brilliant. That's, it shares that. It feels like a Roald Dahl mm. adaptation. The sort of ice cream colours, the big colourful baddies, and the baddies just going, wait till I get you. And you go, oh, God, I am in such lovely, comfortable hands here. And this is supposed to be a shocking filmmaker who's testing the boundaries. But he's going, no, I like this stuff. Yeah. Hi, Corny. Hi, West Baltimore. Luann, you're a pretty darn groovy chick. How long have you been a regular on the show? I've been on the council for five months. And you like you? Two out-of-sight years. <laughs> Not bad. God, he's gorgeous, Penny. Look at her hair. Gosh, I wish mine was that high. This was the brilliant thing, that when Hairspray came out, of course, everyone loved it. It's a feel-good dance movie, and there was someone who, I think, took them to court because they, uh, hi, we threw uh, John Waters' uh, Hairspray. It's such a great film. Have you got anything else of John Waters? I think we got some on the shelf. Or we got uh, <laughs> this one, Pink Flamingos. Oh, this will be some, oh, my. And I don't know how far they got in. How far, <laughs> you know, that point where they're seeing Edie Massey in the, in, in the cot in the baby doll eating the, the eggs do, you know do they get to the yeah you know, there's just because it's probably within 10 minutes you know you've you've, you've got <laughs> yeah. but that bit of going this is not hairspray but actually I think isn't the the miracle of hairspray and why I loved it when I first saw it is that I thought I'd heard I think I'd seen the Jonathan Ross program so I'd heard about John Waters but I'd not seen it and this came out and I got it from the video shop or whatever and watched it and went what's great is this is a complete sellout this is mainstream Studio released, uh, bigger budget, it's a PG, but there's not a minute of it that doesn't feel like a John Waters movie. And that's almost unprecedented that you can sell out this hard, in inverted commas, and go mainstream without ever losing any of the flavour. It still tastes throughout like a John Waters movie. There's no compromise in it. He's not done this movie with his hand bent behind it, arm Mm. bent behind his back. He's done this movie and he wanted to put everything in it that he's put in it. And it's lovely watching someone find another register that's still well, I, them. He says something in, I think it's in Shock Value in the introduction of the, the, the second edition of that, where he says, to be in your 20s and be insane is kind of charming. You know, it means it's obviously, you know, that, yeah. that kind of beat the, the outside of weirdos. To be 50 and a bit like that is kind of sad. Yeah. And, and I mm. think there is that thing where you go, 
you couldn't because I, I do feel with some of his his later movies, I'm not as big. I, I love Serial Mom. Serial Mom Serial is Mom such an Utterly fantastic. Um, I still enjoyed watching things like Cecil B. Demented, but you do get the sense that, hang on a minute, you're getting too old, the yeah. audience and the director, to still be playing those tricks. And I think he, you know, that when he talks about that, that yeah. notion of there's a point where you just can't do that game anymore. Come on. Lie down. Lie down. No moping. Mother is here. You have beautiful skin, Amber. There. It's gone. There's a quote that I've used loads of times in various things I've written, which is I always follow his thing, which is avoid the middle brow, high brow and low brow. <laughs> and, and if you do that, and so I think there is that thing where you, one moment you, you want to watch a film, The Ultimate Degenerate, uh, which is a film from the 1960s, which I'm sure you've all seen. And, and, then, <laughs> and you can then go, now I want to watch Tarkovsky's Stalker. And that's very much his kind of rule, yeah. you know, is you want to watch the greatest things and you want to watch the greatest film makers and you also want to watch some of the weirdest some of the lowest budget stuff that stuff which is just made going this it's like a film that i remember seeing a film called when a man loved a, loves a woman with meg ryan and andy garcia and it's about uh, he's a pilot and she's a wife who seems fun but may well be hiding her alcoholism and my god it's so bland and that bit <laughs> where you actually go I presume in a moment there's going to be a montage with REM's Everybody Hurts. Oh, there we are. And it actually had that moment where... And it's just, you can see you can see the mechanics of it. You and want you these the films mechanics. to bust the algorithm. Yeah. You talk about algorithms at the front saying that you've got to know what the algorithms are to tell a story. I think the delight of Hairspray is it does follow an algorithm, an algorithm of an underdog dance movie. But never, ever feeling by the numbers. And you never know what's going to happen next. And sometimes you feel that even... Even the people making it don't know what's going to happen next. The fun, the climax with the exploding hair oh. is, was still a surprise. I yeah. wasn't quite on the beat for that. It's still, it's still delightfully um, explosive and transgressive and silly and cartoonish and Warner Brothersy and things. It's brilliant. How perfect though that Amber is attacked by her mum's own hair. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just brilliant. Isn't the it? hair jokes, as in you were in hairdo detention and things like that. Yeah. It's the phrase hair, hair hopper. Yeah, yes. hair hopper is a, bit, a beautiful word. Apparently but it's a real phrase. Yeah. Apparently a Baltimore phrase for someone who was teasing their hair up. And also the really? symbolism of it, where at the beginning her mum's taking in ironing, that's her job. And then when the kids rebel and become politicised, they all iron their hair. Yeah. Which again, they become straight heads rather than rat, rat heads. After they meet Piers Adora. Yeah, they learn Oak about sec. the ironing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, again, that, that adoration of that kind of, if you, have you seen Female Trouble? No, I haven't. No. Female Trouble's a, a you know, that, that's the next stage after Pink Flamingo. Slightly bigger budget, but not a big enough budget for ponchos. And uh, <laughs> it has in it, I mean, one of the things that I loved is, is for instance, uh, the, the, the character played by Mink Stoll plays Divine's Kid. Mink, I mean, those things as well. I love those people who went with him, those, yeah. those, mm. those who survived and a lot didn't. And, and there's a tremendous sadness as well when you, when you read um, John Waters, some of his memoirs, is realising the number of people in his early films who, you know, things like A, when that, you know, yeah, you, you, I think now there's a generation that won't really, and we're of that generation which saw the whole wave of culture destroyed. And, yeah. you know, going to see Little Shop of Horrors, and of course, you know, the, the, the composer of that, you know, the, some of those characters, some of those, and then those who did survive, Mink Stoll uh, is, I mean, Mink Stoll, what a great name, isn't yeah, it? Isn't Mink it? Stoll, isn't the it? moment you see Mink Stoll. <laughs> but that's, that's, and, that's, again, it's part of that thing that you go, I remember when this came into my life as a teenager, as a sort of transgressive -y thing to be into. About the same time as you're into Little Shop of Horrors, Rocky Horror Show, that kind of stuff, is when you're into the cramps, 
yeah. And those yeah. people are called things like Lux Interior. And there's this thing going, well, this is a, 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 a film and a culture, that Scala movie, late night movie mm. culture, that says you can reinvent yourself. And it's an absolute clarion call, mm. a, a, a lamp for the moths from the suburbs to fly in and go, this appears to be a place where it is assumed that weirdos are the centre of this rather than yeah. at the fringes. Yeah, it's yeah. an incredibly powerful thing. And the way that suburban kids get obsessed with Rocky Horror and, and, and this kind of stuff is a story that doesn't get talked about very much. But this, this acts as a great beacon of hope. So don't conform. Your school will have told you to conform. Your parents will have told you to conform. You can rebel like really extreme, but there's a lovely mainstream rebellion in in things like hairspray because you can get it from the blockbuster, you can get it from the local video shop. Well, you this is interesting when you mention because Rocky Horror, it would basically, I think, be El Topo, the Jodorowsky movie, Pink Flamingos, Rocky Horror, and A Razorhead are that kind of period of the midnight movie. You yeah, know, yeah. In, in, in your, and you're right. I think there's a there's a thing sometimes when I'm doing shows, and uh, sometimes there's, there's youngish kids in there. And I know that they are. It's probably quite likely that they are the kids who are not having a great time at school, and yeah. they've got their own interests, and they don't. And, and getting that chance, I, I love the thing when sometimes a mum or a dad will come up to me and go, uh, "My son or my daughter really enjoyed that. They didn't know you were allowed to be like that." And to see an wow. old man, as I am, I'm definitely at 51. <laughs> I'm an old man to someone yeah. who's 14 on stage doing stupid voices and larking about, and then going off on something about it is that bit of going. It's all right. You so you may survive as a freak. You might yeah, survive as yeah. a weird. And, and you're right, that, that life belt that exists, all of that kind of outsider culture, which you might not have immediately been able to get hold of, but you knew about it and you would go, this, this is, you know, the, the template in school. When you realise that it's, life is not always going to be school, if you're lucky. Yeah. I mean, for some people, maybe it is. Some people, but that bit where you're hanging around with a bunch of people you have nothing in common with. It's like I have one friend from, from school I'm still friends with. I saw last night. But you know him as well, my mate Ed. Uh, and, you know, that point where we found out that we both read kind of Starburst magazine and we had certain <laughs> interests in, you know, the, the, that, that bit of going... Because I remember when I went to school when I was like 13 and I thought as long as there's another kid who's really into horror movies of Boris Karloff and stuff, and I didn't realise there wouldn't be another one. There yeah. weren't any. You know, and the League of Gentlemen, I think, when you talk to Reese and, 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 and Steve and, and, and Mark and Jeremy, all of them, the, the importance of that part of a kind of counterculture, to have an obsession that is your obsession, needs to be yours for a while, but then yeah. you need to find someone else that you've got to, hey, are you into? When you yeah. talk about the Scala, and the Scala's a really interesting building, because if you don't live in London, you might not know it, it looks like a lighthouse. And it was basically shaped like a lighthouse. And I think for years it was this place where people would come in from the suburbs because it's right by King's Cross Station. It's easy to get to. People would gather there and go, oh, there's more of us. It's like the internet. Mm. But it was a place where you come in and go, oh, you're interested in that as well. And the, what's odd about it is that very often the, the obsessions, the, the, the films and the culture and the magazines, the books you'd read, were actually remarkably shared. It wasn't that it was only you who was into Boris Karloff. There were loads of people. It was pretty much... I love Grayson Perry said it about Forbidden Planet, the bookshop, and he said it's called the Cult Entertainment Megastore. <laughs> and he said the point is if it's Cult Entertainment, there shouldn't be a megastore for yeah. it. The joy of it is it says <laughs> there are millions of you, but the point is you're scattered. And and when someone erects a lighthouse like the Scarlet and says, all night we're going to be watching transgressive films your parents won't like, who turns up is going to be your friends. And where did you see it first, kids? A 40 College Show! 
I was wondering about um, Corny Collins, Sean Thompson, because yeah. I thought, well, what a great performance. Wow. Brilliant comic turn, especially when he... He basically does a mic drop and then starts swigging from a bottle of bourbon. Yeah, but the way his right, yeah. face just falls from glee to fuck <laughs> this, I'm, I'm switched off, is absolutely wonderful. I wonder what else he had done. And the answer is he does fucking everything. He's a puppeteer, a director, a writer, a producer, an acrobat, a magician. He's like this super talented guy who now runs, I think he's a showrunner of a Canadian series or something, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's done things like the Murdoch Mysteries, I think, which, yeah, is a bit, yeah. which is shown on. But there are, there's certain people in it, like um, Vitamin, Vitamin C, as she's called now, yeah. who plays Amber Von Tussle, who I'm certain was not called Vitamin C in the, in the cast list. No, no, she's I don't not. remember, you know, that, that, but now, and she went off with bands and stuff like that. The one that I think is interesting is I'd love to know what happened to Penny Pingleton, Leslie Ann. Uh, oh, she. Powers. Yeah, Leslie Ann yeah. Powers. She, Sean Waters couldn't find her originally. There yeah, was some reunion what? thing, and they said, she just gone off the map because the point is you're an outsider when you come from these movies you might just disappear yeah she was only about 17 years old 16 17 years old like ricky lake and uh she did that film and she's very funny in she's that amazing. film. yeah she really is and uh and she obviously maybe that wasn't her thing because sometimes you think why did they not make it were they and some people i love that thing where just yeah i was in a movie yeah it's fun what did you do now ah you know didn't just, like it so you know, much. It's yeah, quite long hours. I've got a nice shop that I run, and it's great. Please have the new girl lead a lady's choice. I was supposed to lead the lady's choice. Someone asked John Waters, said, uh, said to him, do, do you just attract weirdos? Do you, basically, do you find that oh, everyone in Baltimore comes up to you and says, can I be in your movie? Or do you just wander the streets looking for the most eccentric people? And he said, that doesn't work because they can't be in movies. He said, oddly, you'll find that people who are really good actors are quite shy and they, they express themselves on camera because they can't express themselves elsewhere. He said, if you get the biggest freaks in town in, they're useless. Yeah. Very often they're quiet, ordinary people with this side to them. And he said, the thing I have to understand about Glenn Milster, Divine, is he didn't dress as a woman off camera. He's not a transvestite. He's a character actor. This is a character he plays, like, like someone being a, well, there's a pantomime dame element in it. This does feel like the American equivalent of a pantomime. It's got all those values. That's true, yes. Those transgressive yes. values and also the traditional values, the cheesiness, the campness of it is exactly you get going to really st like stonking pantomime. But he went, he's not a freak. He's just a nice, quiet, interesting man who happens to be, when a camera pointed at him, this exceptional figure. Yeah. And well, Edie divide... Massey is similar. Edie yeah. Massey, there's a documentary on YouTube which is about her thrift store because she ran a thrift store and knew all these people. And, you know, she's kind of incredible face. And Edie Massey, of course, wasn't, wasn't in Hairspray, but was, was, was in she, – she plays Queen Carlotta in Desperate Living and, and she's in uh, Female Trouble and, and uh, in Pink Flamingos. And, and, you know, she's got a tooth missing and stuff and she's big. <laughs> and she's, but she's got kind of exuberant hair, not, not dissimilar actually to the hair that Edna Turnblad has after she has a kind yeah. of makeover. Um, <laughs> and she's just sitting there saying, you know, I always wanted to be a movie star. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, and kind of I am now. You know, she knows she's not really a movie star. She knows in John Waters movies. But she's, you know, people would go to the thrift store and just kind of go, hey, you were in Pink Flamingos. Yeah, I was. You want to have, look, I've got loads of great stuff in the thrift store. He's changed the rules of engagement. I mean, this whole movie's about that. I said, the point is, here's a movie. It's going to be in the cinema. And, and basically, the other guys are going to be in it this time. Not the usual guys who are in it who make the, uh, the bland movies, the middle brown movies. This is going to have the exceptional people in it. And oddly... They're going to be allowed to be in a movie that's exactly the same as the very, very best of mainstream entertainment. But we'll cast it from people who, if, you said, if they said to you in the street, I'm going to be a movie star, you'd go, no, you're not. There, there's, there's, you have to be this height to ride this ride. 
but he's got all the people who can't ride the ride. Well, so we can make a movie with them. A bit like Ken Loach does, doesn't he? You know, yeah. he kind of casts from locals and things, yeah. Yeah. from people he just have, thinks have interesting faces and or a interesting lot of voices, comics, which yeah. is very interesting. You know, people like Gavin Webster and, and, yeah. uh, and Dave Johns, obviously. But there was, but I think you know that influence that John Waters had on on the comic strip presents is very interesting in those early yeah. days where you see that you know Peter Richardson suddenly thought, let's get Ronald Allen. From Mr. Hunter from yes, Crossroads, yeah. you know, to play Uncle Quentin. I'm also a voracious homosexual. <laughs> I think there is something so transgressive in any form of art where you make something mainstream out of that, out of those unpromising elements. Because it's easy, as you said, to make an Andy Warhol, it's easy to make an art house film using unconventional methods. But to go, we're going to make something that could play to an audience of kids on a Saturday night and they'll come out feeling like they've been yeah. to see Billy Elliot. Basically a musical. Yeah, and... The thing, the music does not stop. I don't know whether this is the case, but I presume there was a soundtrack album, but it could have been a triple yeah. album, frankly, yeah. with a number of... Oh, so God, I could listen to Chubby Checker all day long, <laughs> couldn't you? All right! Chubby Checker and Pony Time! It's Pony Time! Get up! Hey, now, the Pony Yeah, it's really weird. There's a thing that happens in the late 80s where everyone gets obsessed by the 50s and the early 60s. I mean, this is a 60s movie set in 62, but it feels completely in that value, the value set of American Graffiti, which again is 61 and 62, that feels 50s. The 60s haven't started yet. Oh, mother, you're so 50s. Larkin hasn't kicked in. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's Back to the Future and it's Levi's ads. It's Reek Petit being in the charts for no <laughs> reason. Um, David Lynch... Dirty dancing. But there's an interesting... Apparently, a friend of mine was saying that a lot of young people are now obsessing about the 80s. Good. So yeah. that's an interesting yeah. thing, where, because I do find the 80s is a very... It's it's a, 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 Obviously, you know, it's different. We were growing up then, and uh, but it is an odd period of, of uh, time for the mainstream films. I think it's it's one of the worst decades for, for cinema. Yeah. But in the kind of counterculture, weirdo movies... Those, I mean, the other day when I was walking by someone trying to hand me a copy of Time Out, and I remember the excitement as a 15-year-old <laughs> of knowing it's Wednesday. In fact, that news agent gets it on Tuesday night yeah. and yeah. seeing what was on at the Metro and the Lumiere and Scala and all those things. And again, very often you didn't have the money and you couldn't go and see them, but you could imagine. Yeah. Well, well, let's imagine what I could do on Thursday. These are my possibilities. Did you used to get the leaflets and the BFI, uh, the National Film Theatre uh, booklet? And yeah. I'd, look, I'd never go. I'd read about things and then it's like reading the spines of books. Yeah. And knowing the titles <laughs> of them and not what's inside. Your culture as a sort of a young kid getting into outside art or finding your people is is all done through leaflets, flyers, gossip from yeah. friends, and those books of like Dennis Gifford's book of horror movies or whatever. You'd have seen these photographs and gone, Well, I've probably it took me years to realise I've probably seen the best bit. We well, also you that didn't realise that doesn't even happen in the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that you know, the, the, those. When I think of what I thought the Wicker Man was going to be about, <laughs> because all I had was Alan Frank, the image in that book, which is the the hand, the hand, hand of, of fate, glory. Yeah, 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 yeah. glory, uh, with the you know candle there lit, and and Edward Woodward just staring at it in a terrified way. So that was the film that I put. Like like, yeah. like the beast with five fingers. This is show business, young lady. If you think you're nervous now, ha! Huh, wait till you're on the air. So the film comes out, um, eight days later, Divine dies. Do you know about the wreath of flowers that Whoopi Goldberg sent to his no, funeral? No, I don't. She wrote a card on it that said, 
See what happens when you get good reviews. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? That's great. <laughs> oh, good. Exactly. How many sweaters do you have? Gee, I never counted. I guess about five. Five. Yeah, it's like it's like the other day when I, you know, sometimes you forget your niche, and I was going through my, uh, um, like trying to sort some books and stuff, and I suddenly went, oh, there's my Mark of the Devil sick bag that I bought off uh, <laughs> eBay, and of course I went, oh, what have I put in it? That's where I put my Jack Chick, you're going to hell comic books, you know, the Jack Chick, and it's like, and then that bit where you go, I realise why my wife goes, if we go to a party together, just don't say anything. There's a reason. She always goes, why did you start? I mean. Even things which I think are no, the, she would go. Why do you keep telling people about these boring things you've seen? <laughs> and and but then every well, now in, and again, in case one of them is one of my people. But it turns yeah, out yeah. that you normally do find if you take the risk, and we're lucky to be in a world where you can take that risk because it doesn't matter if you're not invited back to the party. Uh, we're not that worried about that. We we don't have to. And that moment where someone else then lights up and goes, "Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it was really interesting, wasn't it?" Being in the office that maybe inside that Werner Hog office there is someone else who has an interest in that strange band, that strange film, that strange artist. Mm. But the fear of that revelation is so great that you may live your whole life without ever actually saying your secret adoration for some kind of artist, just in case. I'm going to take the risk, and if I get rejection, then, okay, there's other people. Doesn't mm. matter. And someone might go, Good, you're a bit weird, aren't you? And if they have got that attitude, then I don't want to hang around with them anyway. <laughs> yeah, so right. so yep, that yep. rejection doesn't matter. And I think we are very lucky to be in a, in, in a world where, you know, a lot of people in this world and a lot of people who create things, a lot of people who create human things, are, there are certain cliches that are, are, are true about that point of going, you know, sometime in childhood, the world is not what I thought it was and it doesn't seem to follow to the narrative which I imagined and uh, I don't feel necessarily part of this world and so I want to create a world. Yeah, you know, I think that is quite an important part of creativity yeah. which is the world is not as it, as it should be and I want to create another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I think, you know, we are in a fortunate position where that we, lots of us who want to do that hang around and therefore anyone who, do, you know, you, I always judge, a, if, if a comic kind of is a bit too snidey, a bit, oh, why do you like that? It's a bit shit in it. I think well, you're not you're not someone I should be hanging around with because we're all meant to be open to the weirdos and the, you know someone was telling me they they were doing a gig and a friend of mine was in the front row and uh, someone who has a level of eccentric dressing though I don't see it as you know that bit where you no longer see that as it is yeah, yeah. and one of the comics went who's that weirdo in the front row I was like no we're the, we're the weirdos. We're yeah, meant yeah. to be the weirdos. <laughs> that to me is the most important. If you're looking at the audience and going, they seem weird, well then I'm not sure you should be up here. I was playing Norwich Playhouse about a, a month ago and it was very, they asked me to do a show and I said, well, I've done my show here. They said, oh, come along and do something. I said, oh, well, I'll come up with something then. And I really, throughout the show, I'm thinking, I hope this is enough for them. I hope this is all right. Yeah, because it was just so scattergun and 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 strange to to me, and and the 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 professional comedian, which is a very small part of me, Sam, mm. this tiny little humongous. <laughs> I'm not sure you should be doing this. Um, that was is someone's going. Are these jokes okay? Is this an okay thing? And then you find out afterwards, the level of connection is far greater yeah. than had I done whatever you know. 20 years ago, I thought I was meant to do to be Take a comedian. Take that risk. Yeah. yeah. Take and, that and meet that, those people. Yeah, and then sometimes you will be rejected and sometimes people will really hate you. A lot of my favourite <laughs> things are the things which have the five-star and the one-star reviews yeah. and nothing oh, yeah, in yeah, between. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's still my, my favourite thing was I remember once in Manchester doing a gig, a uh, club gig, and, and I got an encore 
uh, but there was one table that hated me so much that they were still booing. So that bit where you go <laughs> to have both those things to go, oh, this is good. A large enough number of people in this room, it means I'm all right. But also, they hated me. <laughs> they really hated me. I am art. That's no. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and talking about... Did we mention about... Hairspray enough? I hope so. We uh, forgot to mention the film Hairspray at all. Well, Hairspray, yeah, we probably haven't mentioned enough. You, Hairspray is such... I mean, do you know what? Even the remake, which is actually... A bit of... Whereas Hairspray, I uh, will be somewhere in the... It's not as many times I've watched Robocop, but it's going to be somewhere around the 30, 40 times. Really? So shop value, which is annoyingly because my house flooded with shit a few years ago. In fact, I think I was working with you at the time. It's, I, 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 I didn't cause it. No, no, definitely because I've, I've worked with you since, and nothing else has got covered in shit. And uh, he, he plays. I think I can't remember who plays his girlfriend. Uh, oh, someone else who did the very young. And uh, they kidnap models and make them model themselves to death. <laughs> <laughs> Keep modeling, keep modeling. I'm dying. You know, that eat your makeup. A while ago, I thought I couldn't watch them anymore because, you know, my sanity was too much. But I found that it's not. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. They've come with you. Thank you so much for bringing John Waters and especially Hairspray. Thanks for Thanks, oh, Hang on, I've got one more thing to say. Don't don't say that. I've realised one of the things that I quote a lot from, again, in Crackpot, there's an essay where he writes about going into prison. He continued in this vein for another three oh, and a half yeah, yeah, hours. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.